welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And we are so excited because this is a novel episode. Ooh. We have, yeah, we have quite a novel to cover. Catherine, what are we discussing today? We are covering one of Dame Agatha's favorite of her own novels, Crooked House. Crooked House. Yeah, you know that when the novel has a foreword by Christie in which she talks about what a pleasure it was to write, that this is one where she has strong feelings because she definitely does not do that (laughs) very often. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Crooked House, Kemper? So Crooked House was first published in novel form in March 1949 by Dodd Mead in the U.S., then in May 1949 by Collins Crime Club, of course, in the U.K., a condensed version of it ran in Cosmopolitan magazine in the U.S. in October of 1948, and a serialized version in John Bull in the U.K. in seven installments from April to June of 1949. little tidbit from Agatha that she shared in a Times interview in the 60s, apparently the ending to this novel, which we will of course get to, was so shocking that Collins, her U.K. publisher, wanted her to change it. They, I suppose, were so shocked and upset and horrified by it, and she stuck to her guns, as she so often did when it came to her writing, and she refused to change it, and I think we are all the better for it. And let's not forget, I know that I've mentioned this before, in her autobiography, she identifies two titles as her favorite titles among all of her books. The first is Crooked House. The second is Ordeal by Innocence. So we've got that other title to look forward to. And let's get right into it, Catherine Brobeck. Who is our first victim? It's Aristide Leonides, who is an 88-year-old food industry tycoon from Smyrna. Smyrna, now part of Turkey, but it was part of ancient Greece. He's lived in England for over 60 years, though. And he started with like small markets and restaurants and became this empresario in London. So he's found having a seizure. And then he goes into very, very swift death, which is found to be caused by eserine, which is a toxin, but it's used for eye drops for glaucoma, which is why he had them, except that this was poured into his insulin vial. And as he was a diabetic, he got regular shots of insulin from these vials. I'm happy to report that this novel does appear within the pages of A is for Arsenic by Catherine Harkup, favorite uh, secondary source of the podcast under E is for Esserine. And uh, we will get back to that and what Dame Agatha did with Esserine a little bit later. So um, we do have a second victim. That would be Nanny, whose name is Janet Rowe. Fun fact, the name of Christie's cook when she was growing up at her beloved Ashfield was... Jane Rowe, spelled the same way. It was a little shout out to her old cook. I know. Uh, we, we'll only find out her name, actually, at the very, very end of this novel. So After she's, she's basically just, yeah. So she's <laughs> yeah. nanny for the entirety of the novel. Poor nanny is sort of an all-in-one housekeeper and nanny in these post-war days of fewer and fewer servants and even in these rambling country estates. And um, she is killed by a cup of cocoa filled with digitalis. So the poison is just running rampant through this novel. I love it. It has so much poison. So our suspects. First up, we have Brenda Leonides, who's Aristide's 34-year-old second wife, who he married when she was all of 24. It's not just May-December. It's maybe like January to December. Yeah. This is a closed circle mystery because we are at an estate and everyone in the family is a suspect. So we... Although it is noted that they don't ever lock their doors. True. True. So next up, we've got Roger Leonides, who is the eldest son of Aristide, and he is the chairman of Associated Catering, which is one of the major subsidiaries that Aristide has developed from the ground up. And he is married to Clemency Leonides, who is a very severe scientist. And uh, it turns out she doesn't uh, care much for the trappings of wealth. So they live in basically like extreme minimalism. She has an ascetic 
sensibility when it comes right. to design. Yeah. She, and she wears her hair in an eaten bob, which I'm going to admit, I had to Google image. I was like, I'm pretty sure I know what that looks like. And it looks like what you think. It's a super short haircut. Next up, we have Philip Leonides, who is the younger son of Aristide. And he is a writer. And we're going to use air quotes there because I'm not sure many people are reading his books. Let's just say he may not be as popular a writer as Agatha Christie herself. It, it might be like slightly un- clear if they're all even published. Yeah, or if he just writes them and then they pretend that they're published and someone just sort of shoves them into a corner of the library where he wrote them. Yeah, he writes histories largely of unfashionable unread epics and he more or less hides out in his library and is super unfriendly and seemingly uninterested in everything other than his dusty books. Although apparently he's incredibly good looking. Yes. It's an odd trait for that person to have. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we have Magda West, who is Philip's wife, who is an over-the-top actress. Basically, though, she was once a promising actress, but their extreme wealth made it so that she could become very difficult. And so no one wants to work with her. And essentially, she pays to play, as it were. She pays for the productions for parts that she wants to do that she's ill-suited for. And so as a result is basically like an amateur. Yeah. And it's kind of a running theme that this entire family in that they are being supported by the patriarch Aristide Leonides have been in a state of arrested development, if you will, suspended at adolescence, whatever you want to call it, failure to launch. And if that is sounding familiar, it sure is, because that is a similar setup to what we saw in Take at the flood, but I would argue that it is more interestingly rendered here because I think the characters overall in this book are much more interesting and feel fresher than the Taken at the Flood characters did. But our sort of stand-in of sorts for Lynn Marchmont in Taken at the Flood would be our next suspect, and that is Sophia Leonides, who is the eldest daughter of Magda and Philip. So she is Aristide's eldest granddaughter. And seemingly her grandfather's favorite, although that's not totally clear until further along in the book, and then it's made very clear. But she's bright, and she worked for the Foreign Service during the war out in Cairo, and she seems like a resourceful young woman with a good head on her shoulders. With perhaps less sensibility, we have Eustace Lanides, who's a 16-year-old son of Magda and Philip, so Sophia's younger brother. And he was weakened by polio, so he was taken out of school, and he has a limp. He's very bright, but he's also very moody and insecure. Yeah, and sort of easily influenced. And then the final grandchild, so this is the third child of Magda and Philip, is Josephine Leonides. She's 12 years old. She is smart and difficult. More on her later. Yes, much more. And then we have Edith de Havilland, not Olivia, the shrewd, if a bit uh, harsh, sister-in-law of Aristide. Her beloved sister was Aristide's first wife who tragically died pretty young. And so Edith moved in after her death to guide the family and the many children. And there were many children and all of them are now dead except for Roger and Philip. And they died either in the wars or in various car accidents, etc. Right. One of them was named Electra, which I thought was really interesting for <laughs> a Greek father to name his daughter Electra. Yikes. Yikes. And then finally, we have Lawrence Brown who is the only member of this list who is not part of the family, per se. He is the children's tutor and a possible love interest of Brenda Leonides. Mm. All right, let's get right into it. The world as it appears to be. Charles Hayward, who we have not mentioned yet because he is not a suspect. He is our first-person narrator. Love a first-person narrator in a Christie novel. He is a young Foreign Service officer who, during the war has fallen madly in love with Sophia Leonides, another young Foreign Service officer stationed in Cairo. But rather than propose to her there, they both agree to wait it out until they're finally reunited in England and everything's kind of settled down and they'll determine then whether or not they're still in love with one another. Three years later, in 1947, Charles is returning to London, so eager to see Sophia that he telegrams her en route. And then upon settling himself back in London, he opens the paper to find a notice that 
Aristide has died. We've already heard about Grandpa Aristide from Sophia back when they were in Cairo. And we know that he lives with his extended family in Three Gables, which is his house, in Swinley Dean outside of London. And Sophia references it in passing with the Mother Goose nursery rhyme for Crooked House. There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence against a crooked style. He bought a crooked cat which caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in a little crooked house. Now, I have to say, we've thrown some shade at Christy in the past for her nursery rhyme titles. <laughs> one, two, buckle my shoe. <laughs> right. But this one works. This is a good title. Oh, this is this is really good. Yeah, yeah. it's a fantastic title. Because as, as we'll see, oh, is this a crooked house? And it's a creepy little nursery rhyme, and there's nothing better than a creepy nursery rhyme, a la, and then there were none. Right, so. absolutely. All right, so Charles has already messaged Sophia to meet him for dinner, but he sends another message letting her know, oh my gosh, I saw that notice of your grandfather's death. If you can't come, I totally understand. She messages back and says she'll be there on time. And at dinner, we find out two things very swiftly. First, Aristide Leonides has been murdered. And Sophia is not even supposed to have left the house. She climbed out a window. <laughs> Again, <laughs> very resourceful, our Sophia. Right. And also, she is going to pull a Carla Le Marchand from Five Little Pigs right now right. and refuse to marry her beloved Charles until her family situation is sorted out because she does not want to live under that pesky cloud of suspicion and intrigue that murder brings on a family. He wants to go down to the house right away to Three Gables and try to sort things out. But first, he goes to meet the old man. And this is how he refers to his father throughout the book, quite charmingly, capitalized the old man. Yes, it's a, it's a proper name, the old man. The old man is, again, Charles' father, Sir Arthur Hayward, and he's the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard. He, of course, as a result, is very familiar with the Lanides murder. He introduces Charles to Chief Inspector Taverner and encourages Charles to take that invitation and go to Three Gables with Taverner, and Charles can act sort of as Scotland Yard's inside man, which Sophia's all about anyway, because she had wanted him to see the situation of her family from the outside, so she was happy that he went to go talk to his father. And so now he's going and following through on that, and he's going to actually go to the house with Scotland Yard. Charles um, goes down there where he's immediately in ambiguous presence because the family, it turns out, is so self-involved, no one even bothers asking why he's there, which is fascinating. And so it turns out he could be there with the police or with Sophia or who knows. And this all happens very quickly. And Taverner advises him to give as little information to the family as possible. Right. And I will just say, because I suspect this will not come up again, even as we're discussing the novel in our rankings. I, one thing that is sort of fascinating about this novel is that it provides a very inside view of police procedure in a way that's unusual, I think, in Christie, because Charles really is this sort of inside man and that his father is part of Scotland Yard. Taverner is a friend, essentially, because he has this inside connection. And yet Charles has the connection to Sophia. So he's really going back and forth. And I know Poirot does that too. But there's a certain sort of intimacy in the police scenes that I don't think we often get in a Christie novel. And I found that really interesting. And the old man, Sir Arthur, will turn out to really be an important piece of figuring out what's going on here. Yeah, he's, he's very astute. I mean, I actually found it slightly disturbing that Scotland Yard would so readily just like let in a rando into oh, the yeah. investigation. It's highly irregular. And you know what, Catherine? It's post-war. Did you learn nothing in Taken at the Flood? <laughs> it's topsy-turvy. Murderers are having happy endings with their lady loves. It's true. So we find out that the two main suspects are Brenda Leonides, that would be the second wife, and the tutor, Lawrence Brown, under the operating theory that Brenda is the one who injected him regularly with his insulin, and she's absolutely the one who injected him that fateful day with what turned out to be esserine instead of insulin, though it was in the vial labeled for insulin, and she, of course, claims she had no idea. In any case, she obviously had the opportunity to poison him, and it's possible that she had a motive if she and Lawrence were carrying on an affair, as many seem to think they were. But 
there's no evidence of that affair. And then why did she immediately run for help? Why didn't she swap out a different insulin bottle at that point? She clearly didn't try to cover her tracks at all. We also find out that everyone in the house knew about the toxicity of those eye drops because Josephine, granddaughter, had asked her grandfather in front of everyone about it. And he had joked, you know, ha ha ha, that better not end up in my insulin bottle because that would be really bad. We're getting the, oh, everyone could have done it very swiftly here in the book. Right. So Charles and Taverner set interviews with the entire family, and they are, as we've already laid out, an odd lot. First of all, the house itself, it's like the idea of an English cottage, except if that English cottage had taken performance-enhancing drugs Three Gables is a misnomer because it's castle-sized. There are like 12 gables. We so rarely are able to give Christy credit for evocative physical descriptions. (laughs) This is what she says. It was a cottage swollen out of all proportion. It was like looking at a country cottage through a gigantic magnifying glass. The slantwise beams, the half-timbering, the gables. It was a little crooked house that had grown like a mushroom in the night. It's immediately monstrous and creepy. So in this monstrous mushroom of a house, there are three separated living sections that are all connected via unlocked doors. First, we have Aristide and Brenda's main section, then Roger and Clemency's section, which is very sterile and spare per Clemency's personality, and then a much larger, grand, and cluttered section for Philip, Magda, and their three children, which is much more indicative, I'd say, especially of Magda, who is constantly Everything is a set. Yeah. Everything is a set. Exactly. So she just, she just lives among props and and tends to collect them. None of the servants are suspects because Aristide paid them all tremendously well in their working life and he wasn't leaving them anything in the will. Right. So of the family members, they seemingly all have their own comfortable levels of income. And in the will that everyone is aware of, Brenda is set to receive a hundred thousand pounds. Edith is going to get a little bit of money. And then the rest of Aristide's prodigious fortune will be split three ways among Roger, Philip, and then the three grandchildren. And the entire family saw Aristide revise his will per these specifications. It was witnessed by two servants. The contents of the will were covered so that the servants didn't see when they were signing it, but that's also pretty standard practice. And this was, per Aristide, sent to his attorney. And everyone, you know, is not even really questioning the contents of the will because they're also aware of it. And that also just does not seem to indicate much of a motive because it's pretty fair and equal. But turns out there's a little bit of a wrinkle. Yeah, well, and it turns out there's no will. Yeah, it turns out there's no will because the regular lawyer is like, "Uh, I don't have the will. He never sent it. And then no one else can find it. So for a while, that is sort of a mystery hanging over the proceedings. But then we uh, get the entrance of a rather significant character, don't we, Catherine? Yeah, after spending the first night there, where we met most of these people, Charles is awakened by someone goblin-like in his bedroom. This would be Josephine. In front of me, a round white blob appeared to float in space. It was some few seconds before I realized that it was a human face I was looking at, a face suspended in the air about a foot or two away from me. As my faculties returned, my vision became more precise. The face still had its goblin suggestion. It was round with a bulging brow, combed back hair, and small, rather beady black eyes. But it was definitely attached to a body, a small, skinny body. It was regarding me very earnestly. Keep in mind, he was asleep, so seems like this girl who I was just standing there watching him sleep Yeah, I would while. just scream, probably. <laughs> Creepy. Um, yes. Anyway, she is not at all put off by the fact that he is put off by her. Instead, she just starts in on like a monologue about, you know, her fascination with the death of her grandfather. You know, she explains at length to Charles about her love of detective books. She and Eustace both love detective books, although she loves them more than Eustace. And also Eustace was really mean to her and said that girls can't be detectives, but clearly he's wrong. And, you know, she just knows more and is smarter than everyone else. And she keeps a detective journal and she knows more about the family business than anyone else because she listens at everyone's doors at all times. This is basically a lot of information we get from Josephine. And poor Charles, who has just been asleep, is sitting there 
creeped out and also slightly fascinated. There was a similar child character actually in Peril at End House. I mean, Christy has done this before, both the sort of gruesome-minded child and also, of course, the detective-loving child, most notably um, Peter Carmody in Body in the Library, who's referencing Agatha Christie herself and asking for signatures. And let's never forget Linda Marshall in Evil Under the Sun who is suspected right. of of murder herself and engaging in voodoo with a doll. So, you know, right. lots of right. interesting children in the Christie of perhaps Josephine will turn out to be a little more interesting. I couldn't say. This is the point um, at which we start learning several uh, interesting facts from Josephine. Because I'd like to point out before this even happens in the book, this is a, I think, a curiously spare book plot-wise for Christy. Yes. You know, we're used to the kind of Christy kitchen sink book and the one that comes to mind because she called it out herself in her autobiography for having too many side plots in it and, and characters and incident is podcast favorite, The Murder at the Vicarage. It's not necessarily an insult to say that that book is full to bursting with incidents and side plots and, and whatnot. But, you know, she, especially I think in her earlier novels, felt the need to do that because it was a means of obfuscation. But we have remarkably little going on this in this book to the point where, you know, we're thinking, what is going on? How are right. we possibly ever even going to solve this mystery because we're not even given the tools to solve it? So these little intrigues that Josephine introduces, I think, kind of bridge us over and ultimately mislead us <laughs> as readers quite brilliantly. But in any case, here's what Josephine imparts. Roger Leonides is embezzling from Associated Catering. That would be the business that he's running for his father. And his father, Aristide, found this out on the very day he died. Add to that, Roger and Clemency had been planning on running away to the West Indies the following week. Oh, and also that Brenda and Lawrence, you know how maybe they were carrying on a love affair, but oopsie, there's no evidence. Josephine knows about love letters. She can probably find them if need be, because she can do anything. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, Philip Leonides is in financial strain because Magda's last play, Jezebel. Banging on a lady's door. I'm scandalized at you. (laughs) All of the plays that Magda references are either real plays or referencing real incidents and stories, which is a delightful and diverting aside within the novel. So Jezebel is obviously the play that the movie Jezebel starring Betty Davis was in. It's gorgeously red. You can't wear red to the Olympus Ball. Why not? You never saw an unmarried girl in anything but white. And you're going to see one tomorrow night. But apparently Magda was not so much a Betty Davis <laughs> in her version of Jezebel. And it was a massive failure. Uh, on that note, Charles brings all this information back to Scotland Yard. And namely, the point that he brings back is that Roger actually has a cause for murder. They do a little digging and they find out that, indeed, Associated Catering is on the verge of collapse. And they bring in Roger for questioning, who very quickly crumbles and admits everything. So Associated Catering is going to collapse in the next week or so, but it's not because of embezzling. It's because he's just incompetent. He let his father down. His father trusted him. His father heard through the grapevine on the day of his death that this was going to happen. But rather than be angry... He ended up writing a letter instructing his own bankers to bail out Associated Catering and thus Roger. The letter was never posted because Aristide died and Roger forgot, but he still has the sealed letter, which he gives to Scotland Yard. Also, now that Aristide's dead and he can't bail it out, the company is definitely going to collapse. So Roger literally has no motive for killing Aristide. And in fact, he has every motive for keeping him alive. Meanwhile, <laughs> while this is all happening, <laughs> back at Three Gables, Charles gets a frantic call from Sophia that Josephine is in the hospital, having been bashed over the head by a falling doorstop. And, you know, previously, Josephine had also mentioned detective novel lover that she is that, you know, it was a, about time for a second murder. Right. So Charles dashes back to the house and takes a little look-see at this whole door-doorstop situation. And it happened in a shed that Josephine had been playing in at the back of the house. And it looks like the door had been booby-trapped, that the doorstop had been placed sort of at the top of the door, similar to the attempted murder of Pilar in Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Do you remember that? It was the exact same thing of putting putting the doorstop, I think it was even the doorstop, on top of a door. Um, And that was... Also, ultimately, not 
successful. It looks like the would-be killer had apparently tried this thing out um, multiple times because there are a bunch of dents in the floor. Um, And it was a very much sort of hit or miss, literally, uh, situation. I mean, the thing could have easily missed Josephine, too, but it looks like the killer got lucky. But very oddly, in the shed, there's also this chair with mud on the seat, as if someone had put their dirty shoes on it, which is bizarre. And we are also told at the same time that, you know, the door that this doorstop was placed on is low enough for any regular-sized adult person to reach. So that's curious. Mm. Moving on. (laughs) So Josephine's room has been ransacked as well, as if someone had been looking for something. Charles immediately remembers the hinted at love letters, and he remembers seeing Josephine come out of this equipment room by where the nursery slash lessons room is. So he and Travener go there, and they immediately find this stash of love letters between Brenda and Lawrence, who are subsequently arrested for murder. Josephine is sent home from the hospital, albeit with the caveat that she's soon going to be sent to Switzerland by her mother, who is determined to get her away from Three Gables. I'd like to highlight that scene in which Brenda is arrested and is sort of wailing and just mm-hmm. like like a trapped animal as she is taken away is really effective. It's really yeah. awful. Because Brenda, too, I mean, we'll get to it when we talk about characters, but I thought she was a really interesting character because there's a lot of real sympathy directed her way by Charles and I think by proxy, like <laughs> even by the reader. Um, well, yes, although much to Sophia's chagrin. Much to Sophia's chagrin. And we do realize, I think, as astute readers, that she doesn't deserve all the sympathy either. It's like she's a weird mix of kind of knowing what she's doing, but also having gotten in over her head. But just for mystery nerds, I have to mention that Charles, when he sees Brenda's face and how terrified she is, he's like, what does that remind me of? And then he finally remembers, oh, when Magda Leonides was talking about this role she's obsessed with. And there are constant references throughout this novel to this role that she wants to do next in this play. And it's the role of Edith Thompson. And Edith Thompson is this famous, famous murder trial that happened uh, much earlier in the 20th century that contemporary readers would have known. I won't go into it now because we don't really have time, but I would actually direct anyone who's interested to a sister podcast, She Done It, which we are big fans of and has an episode all about Edith Thompson that I quite enjoyed. It's just also a really clever reference because the way in which Edith Thompson and her lover were convicted of the murder of Edith's husband, so again, this is all very apt kind of parallel to be drawn, was through letters that they wrote to each other. So again, that's how Brenda and Lawrence are being caught here. So it's all just very clever. And I love when Christy references real life murders. And Edith Thompson is just one of the many ones that she actually references in this book. On top of all of this, remember that whole pesky will situation? We had the case of the missing will. Well, a signed will is eventually produced by an old friend of Aristide Leonides, a fellow Greek countryman to whom he had entrusted it. It's handwritten, and it was never mailed in to Aristide's lawyer, Mr. Gateskill. And Mr. Gateskill is very aggrieved about this slight to him as a lawyer. And the real will leaves Brenda the same amount of money, 100000 pounds, but the entirety of his estate, the rest of his vast fortune is left to one person alone. That would be Sophia Leonides, because she is the only member of the family he can trust to properly oversee not just the money, but all the other family members. She's the only one who has a good enough head on her shoulders to manage them. And further complicating matters, Sophia later admits to Charles that she actually knew about this because right. her, her grandfather had told her some weeks earlier. So now guess who has the strongest motive <laughs> to have killed Aristide? Uh, that would be Charles's kind of sort of fiance. Yeah, Lady Love. <laughs> so we're back in London yet again. And Charles meets again with his father, and they both admit to having real doubts that the actual murderers are in custody, i.e. neither of them really feels great about Brenda and Lawrence. And then Sophia calls yet again because Nanny's dead. She drank a cup of Josephine's abandoned chocolate, and apparently that abandoned chocolate was laced with digitalis, and she is no longer amongst the living. Right, so it seems like for the second time someone was trying to kill Josephine, who has made no bones about all that she knows and how she sneaks around. You know, it's not a leap to imagine that the murderer is trying desperately to kill poor 12-year-old Josephine. 
Right. Charles and Taverner rush back to Three Gables, cursing their luck at clearly having caught the wrong murderer since Brenda uh, and Lawrence are in custody when this happens, so they couldn't have done it. At the house, Roger and Clemency have their bags packed. They're trying to hightail it out of the country to the West Indies. Edith tells Josephine that it's not safe in the house and they're going to have to get away from all this commotion and just go get some ice cream. Fun little ice cream trip. Greedy little 12-year-old that she is, she agrees. We should also note that several scenes previously, Edith had Charles drive her to an appointment in... Oh, Catherine, Harley Street. Was it Harley Street? It was Harley Street, yes. Charles babysits Josephine for a while, putting on her outside clothes while Edith finishes some letters that she apparently has to do right then. A little curious. Edith and Josephine leave. They do not return to the house. Night falls. Taverner calls out the local police. It's all very upsetting. And you know what? It gets even more upsetting because Edith's car is found overturned on the bottom of a local quarry with both Edith and Josephine dead in it. Yep. And we are only a handful of pages from the end of the book, Kemper. (laughs) Yeah, we really are. Our resolution is going to come swift and it's going to come hard. We have a pair of clues (laughs) to go through. Not much before we get there. Catherine Bobek, clue number one. Take it away. All right. So as we said, there really aren't very many, but there is one really big one. And it comes from the old man, Charles' father fairly early on. And Charles is asking him, you know, in his experience as the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard, what are murderers really like? And they spend actually a pretty large amount of um, page real estate talking about this. It goes on for a number of paragraphs. But here is what the old man ends up telling Charles. Quote, a murderer wants to talk. Yes. You see... Having committed a murder puts you in a position of great loneliness. You'd like to tell somebody all about it, and you never can. And that makes you want to all the more. And so, if you can't talk about how you did it, you can at least talk about the murder itself. Discuss it, advance theories, go over it. If I were you, Charles, I should look out for that. And the deduction here is we, like Charles, should be paying attention to who most wants to talk about and theorize about the murder. There is pretty much only one person in this book this applies to. Yeah. I would also argue that Sir Arthur, the old man, makes very few comments throughout this novel on the procedure of the case whenever his son is checking in with him, but they are all key. Just a couple more, he says, are a child, you know, translates desire into action without compunction. He also makes a reference to Constance Kent. I told you that there were real-life murderers scattered throughout this novel. That is a 16-year-old girl who in 1860 killed her four-year-old brother very violently. There's still a little uncertainty over whether or not she actually did it. So that's interesting. He also is very concerned, you know, halfway through the story, telling Charles to, quote, be careful of the child, to, quote, look after her. We don't want anything to happen to her, which on its surface has a clear meaning of make sure you protect the child. But perhaps there's another way to read into what he's saying there. I don't know. All right. So clue number two, the mud on the chair in that shed near the door where that doorstop was set up to maim Josephine. Hmm. Deduction here. This is really the only true clue. The rest of those things that we went through in clue number one, we were being kind calling them clues. They're hints. There are a lot of hints in this book, allusions, but this is truly a clue because the deduction there is those are footprints on a seat. I mean, they're, they're called out that way and they even wonder, well, why would anyone need to stand on this seat, especially because the door is noted to be tall enough that any adult person could easily reach it. It's like a foot above a normal sized person's head. So the only person who would need to stand on a chair to reach the top of that door is a child. And even Eustace is 16 years old, so he's already normal size. There's only one person who could have set up the doorstop then on the door, and that would be Josephine Leonides. And we are just going to barrel right into our shocking resolution here. Edith knew that it was Josephine because she found Josephine's hidden journal in an unused dog kennel behind the back door, because of course she did. And, you know, we're constantly wondering what Josephine is putting in that journal. She makes references to it. We see her with it all the time. What is the first line of that journal, Catherine? Today, I killed grandfather. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, lays that right out there. Yep. 
What was the motive, Catherine, which we are put on notice as to what irked young Josephine? It turns out grandfather uh, wouldn't give her ballet lessons because, you know, it was clear she wasn't going to become a good ballerina. Yep. Sophia and Charles are kind of poring over the journal and, and it's noted that she rather pathetically misspells ballet, B-A-L-L-Y. Right. And she makes reference to Charlotte Corday murdering someone in a bath and not doing it very well in the French Revolution because Lawrence Brown has been teaching her about the French Revolution and she totally misspells that too. This is what Sophia says. She's such a little monster and yet, and yet it's so terribly pathetic. It really is true. She still is a 12-year-old girl, but she's a monster. She's a psychopath. Complete psychopath. But I mean, we yeah. so rarely have psychopaths in Christie, but like this is the most famous example and probably the most effective, too. I mean, I guess we sort of had one in Toward Zero, but we had more the machinations of a puzzle mystery in that one to hang on to. We have a psychopath in and then there were none, too. Of course, of course. But this is a psychopath with not many of the trappings that we're used to having in a Chrissy mystery, even one right. that features a psychopath, because the psychopath is at least going about things in some sort of way that allows a reader to engage in reasoning and deduction to figure right. out what the psychopath is doing. But here, there is one, you know, there is that one clue. And I think that clue can get us there, right? There really is only one person who could have set up that. It's it's very door. late in the book. Yeah. But yeah, and I mean, it's pointed out pretty aggressively. It is. It also reminded me a little bit of The Hollow, which is light on clues, heavy on character, and has a, a revelatory ending whose power much more relies on character than plotting. It's just that even in The Hollow, there's a lot of the trappings of red herrings. Right. And we don't even have that here, which is why ultimately I respect this book so much more because this book is never even pretending, yet it still tricks you and it makes the ending that much more shocking where you're like, oh my God, how did I not see that? Okay, I get it. The other really striking thing is that before I reread this book for the podcast, I think we even talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Catherine, I was thinking about The Bad Seed, another novel famously adapted multiple times. And in The Bad Seed, part of the kind of foundational element of that is that she seems innocent. She seems like the sweetest, nicest little girl, and there's hardly anyone who sees through the facade. Josephine does not have a facade. Josephine is creepy AF. Right, <laughs> like right. You know, and that's different. And I, I think that if you had asked me to describe the plot of Crooked House before I reread it, I probably would have assumed it was more in line with The Bad Seed. But this is better. Because, again, it gives you the impact at the end of like, oh, how could I not have seen that? Because Josephine was being a total creepster the entire time. You know, you don't expect Christy to have the audacity to go there. Obviously, Christy, like all of these kind of amazing tricks that she wows us with in these novels, she's almost never the first one to come up with them. She didn't invent the child murderer trope, certainly. But boy, did she do a superb version of it. Yeah. So just to finish up the plot. <laughs> yes, um, those, wrap up some loose ends. So Edith just appearing for a few minutes to uh, do a little writing, <laughs> you know, on the side. <laughs> she leaves two envelopes. One is for the chief inspector and she confesses to the two murders and says, you know what? I did it. Blame it on me. Please let Brenda and Lawrence go free. The second letter is to Charles, and she tells him that he can share the letter with Sophia if he wants to, and he totally does, like, immediately. <laughs> right. Um, She's, like, basically looking over his shoulder. <laughs> so. yeah. And Edith says that she doesn't know if they'll think her choice was right or wrong, but after she found the notebook, which she encloses so they can look at it, she made this decision. And let's think back to that Harley Street visit. She, of course, only had a few months left to live because she went to Harley Street. And when it came out, what Josephine had done, she knew that it would shame the entire family. Josephine would be locked in an institution. That was no life for this 12-year-old girl. And she thought that uh, just a you know quick little amisui was the uh, kinder way out. And um, Charles and Sophia totally agree. So then a little lighter button, Sophia accepts Charles's marriage proposal. She does so specifically because he does tell her that he has a new assignment in the diplomatic service in Persia. And they can just both go traveling and be free of the, uh, I'd say, you know, a, a touch toxic environment of her house and the family that lives in it. And uh, <laughs> maybe they'll get a chance at some happiness. 
I have to imagine her grandfather wouldn't be pleased that upon inheriting everything because he wanted her to lead the family and manage all these difficult personalities that she's just hightailing it out of there. But you know what? You know what? Her prerogative. Her prerogative. So let's touch on the one adaptation that we have for this novel. And it is super, super weird that there was no adaptation of this novel until 2017. Right. You know, again, I just mentioned The Bad Seed, right, which was published five years after Crooked House. Again, not that Christie invented the child killer trope, but The Bad Seed has had no fewer than three film adaptations over the years. But this one took a really long time to be adapted. And as we always do, we turned to Mark Aldridge and his book, Agatha Christie on screen to help make sense of this. Interestingly, there was a reference made at least in 1979 by Rosalind Hicks to a quote, family jinx on the book. (laughs) Like a family curse that... (laughs) Terrifying. Yeah, that prevented Rosalind from even agreeing to having the novel read aloud on the radio. And indeed, it wasn't until 2008 that the book even got a BBC radio play adaptation, but it did at least get that. And you know, as Mark himself notes, if any novel were to have a family jinx on it, pretty much makes sense that it would be this one. I don't think we have to explain why. However, Matthew Pritchard, Rosalind's son and Christie's grandson, had no awareness of this supposed jinx. And Mark notes that... There were a few attempts to adapt the novel over the years. It just seems that they they didn't really amount to much. There was apparently a script in 1990 that was set in the present day, but that one seems to have been written on spec by a pair of American writers. There was a 1993 script written by a more established writer in the UK, but that one didn't seem to amount to, to anything either. Then in 2011, there was a very widely publicized deal involving Neil Labute as director with a script by... Wait for it. Julian Downton Abbey Fellows and Tim Rose Price. And that version was to have Julie Andrews, Gabriel Byrne, and Matthew Good starring in it. Matthew Good. (laughs) I have to imagine Julie Andrews was Edith, of course. Gabriel Byrne was Roger? Household Roger? Yeah, that seems right, I suppose. And Matthew Good was obviously Charles. Ugh, I could have done with that one. (laughs) But this is the version that actually did eventually morph into the film that was made. Different director. The director is Gilles Paquet Brenner. He did a rewrite, so there are three writers credited on this script. And that version was released around Christmas in 2017. First on Channel 5 in the UK, then it got a really limited theatrical release in the US. And that starred Glenn Close as Edith, Max Irons as Charles Hayward, and Christina Hendricks as Brenda... Leonides and um and don't forget my beloved special agent Dana Scully as Magda Jillian Anderson as Magda Leonides in quite a wig quite a wig <laughs> it reminded me of nothing so much as Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra wig minus oh the it reminded me a little bit of Madeline Kahn and Clue <laughs> yes that too <laughs> it's it's if you put together Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra and Madeline Kahn and Clue you get Jillian Anderson and Crooked House. I think that seems very accurate. So one of our listeners mentioned this. I think it's such a good point. Ordeal by Innocence, we already mentioned this title, Christie's other favorite title. There was an adaptation of Ordeal by Innocence that was supposed to come out almost the exact same time at the end of 2017. This was written by Sarah Phelps. There was a whole kerfuffle about one of the actors who had to be replaced in it. We will get into that story when we cover Ordeal by Innocence. For that reason, it didn't come out until a few months later, at which point there was a whole kerfuffle about the ending, which had been changed. But I think that a lot of people confuse Ordeal by Innocence with Crooked House because they were both big casts. They came out around the same time. They both seemed to be very dark, but they really are very different, at least in this very important way. This Crooked House adaptation is rather faithful. There's not much that's really being changed here. I mean, I would say that the biggest change is that Sophia and Charles are at odds here. Like, they're at odds with with each other. He was kind of spying on her in Cairo. They're very much not engaged. You know, she does sort of come back to him and beg him to come to the house because in this version, he's a PI. He's like a private detective. His father is dead. So the old man is dead. And there's a little bit of what I have to imagine is meta hijinks going on having cast Max Irons because there's a whole scene where he goes to Scotland Yard and everyone is talking about his father. And he's just like, oh, so tired of everyone talking about my father and being compared to my father. And come on, it's Max Irons. That's got to happen to him a lot. You have no idea. (laughs) 
Right. The thing that struck me, I think that we can talk about this in the rankings, is that by making Charles a detective, they were adding an active element into the narrative. And what is interesting about this book is that it is oddly a little bit passive. I totally agree with that. And so you can actually understand how it would have been slightly hard to adapt. For example, both of the deaths and, in fact, Josephine's accident happen, quote unquote, off screen. They happen off page. We hear about them after the fact. Yeah. It's Christy using first person for the benefit of obfuscation, which we saw her do so much with Hastings, especially mm-hmm. in the in the Poirot novels. And we saw a lot of the Suchet adaptations correcting for that merely with third person camera work, right? And right. just making Hastings more involved and less of a doof. I agree with you. I actually think that even though I almost always prefer a Christie first person narrator, I think Charles is one of her weaker first person narrators and probably the least interesting character in the story. He's very flat and I think they had to give Max Irons more to chew on for the movie and to make it compelling and to have him be our eyes and ears throughout the film. I don't think it's necessarily a big problem for the novel per se, but I think that, yes, no. the change is the change was necessary for the film. If we had Charles adding a lot of personality, it would dilute a lot of the power of what's going on. But again, that's the novel medium, right? And you do have to do something different for a film. So I actually think it's sort of purposeful on her part. I don't think it was a mistake what she was doing with that narrator. But yeah, it creates a sort of challenge for adaptation that I think they handled well. I mean, I'll be honest, I hadn't seen this adaptation until having reread the book. And I did that on purpose because by the time it came out, I knew that we were doing this project. The thing that I took issue with is that I found the book really easy to read and breezy despite its opposite of breezy tone, right? Breezy yet creepy, which I think is like such a Christie-ish thing to pull off. Right. Which she did amazingly well. And like for me, that's why I, I, I love, truly love this book. One of my favorites that we've read thus far. The movie to me felt a little airless and slow. And I think part of that is there are a lot of elements of the book that temper some of that ultimate creepiness. For example, Clemency and Roger in the book actually have a really amazing marriage. They actually really love each other. And Roger is kind of this like lovable mess. And Clemency is this like weirdo who hates money and gets a kick out of denying herself things. And it's all just really interesting. And Magda is funny. There is some humor in her obsession with these plays and whatnot. And Brenda, this is where, you know, I'll go back to Brenda being, yes, somewhat of a conniving manipulator. Like she, I think, knew what she was doing, where she's, she's often compared to sort of like a fat cat, right? She likes being comfortable and she has this kind of grin on her face. You know, she's like the cat that got the milk and yet she's not evil and she does feel trapped by these people and they are cruel to her. And And she did seem to actually care about Aristide. Exactly. Like she's not just merely a gold digger. This isn't even a criticism of Christina Hendricks's performance. I, I, I think she was actually good in the film, but she's made to be American. I guess they didn't want to do a British accent with Christina Hendricks. That's fine. She's like a former Vegas showgirl. She's more, I think, of the straightforward manipulator in this version. It's just these characters are all more complicated than they seem to be at first and more complicated than Christie's often given credit for, much like Derek. I compare them to the characters in Five Little Pigs. When you start pulling away a little bit, like there's just a lot going on with these characters, which is just going to, I think, how wonderful the book is. But the movie wasn't a miss, like it wasn't a fail by any means, but it just flattened what I loved about the book slightly. That's my only Yeah, it's a it's a little claustrophobic. Yeah. Also, Charles's secretary is called Miss Aykroyd. Just no. I saw this when it came out and I rewatched it the other night and I don't have a huge problem with it. I don't need to watch it a third time, Kemper. No, (laughs) but no, you know, I I didn't mind having to rewatch it. This sounds about the most tepid praise I could possibly give. But, you know, if you've seen some of these adaptations, you would know that that would be high praise. (laughs) Right. Yes. A solid showing. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a solid B minus. Yeah, I might even give it a B. 
All right, let's move on to our rankings for this novel and start, as we always do, on plot mechanics. One note on this, because I found this fascinating. Somehow I haven't mentioned friend of the podcast, John Curran, yet, which is just crazy. But in his book, Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks, you know, he says that given that Christie refused to change the twist ending when her her publishers wanted to, just given how shocking and outlandish it is, you'd think that the kid did it is sort of the raison d'etre of this book. But... If you look in the notebooks, apparently, she actually went through five other possibilities when she was working it out. Um, she was musing about Brenda and Clemency and Lawrence and Edith and Sophia. And, you know, she did early on also consider Josephine. I believe her earlier name was Harriet in the notes. But I just think that's fascinating. And again, just so indicative of the febrile mind of Agatha Christie that, like, she just had so many ideas and so many variations on what she could do. It wasn't as cut and dry as like, oh, right, I finally have to get to my The Kid Did It book. I think that this book is deceptively simple when it comes to plot. And this is where, you know, we're often giving Christy points in this category for spinning a lot of plates in the air. And it is undeniable that she is not spinning that many plates in the air. I mean, this book relies on one big obfuscation. It doesn't even rely on an obfuscation, really. It's an assumption. It really, you're right. It relies on one big assumption, which is that well, of course, a 12-year-old child couldn't have been the murderer. And that, in fact, is not the case because no one is ever safe in Christie. And when people make that point about Christie, they often refer to this very book because it is so very shocking. It reminded me a little bit, rereading it, of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd in that that book also relies on one big twist. And you would think that upon rereading it, it would be a tedious reread. But I found it fascinating to see just how cleverly Christie did lay in those hints, many of them coming from the old man and also just from the characterization of Josephine and, you know, the way that she resembles some of her previous children in past novels, but then the ways that she doesn't. Like, she really is playing fair with her because she is presented as a little creepy psychopath from the beginning, and we get that sense of inevitability, which is the best Christy clues when we're on the other side of it, of like, oh my god, heel to forehead, how could I not have seen that? And that's the sign of a good Christy to me. Interestingly, I think my reaction was slightly different than yours. And it was that, of course, I knew what the plot of this book was. And I went into it and I was like, well, there's nothing else here other than you have a psychotic child. And when you know that that is what the outcome is, you start reading it a little bit differently. And you liked that it was layered in. And for me, it just seemed that there wasn't enough additional elements layered in to be fair we're not judging based on reread right we are no of course no 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 no, of course not but i found some of it to be less blended in than i might have hoped upon rereading it to that end i find the mechanics element a little bit harder to assess where i think it stands you know i think it's also very linked to plot credibility because you know what it's a very credible plot it's a child who's coming up with a strategy. And so the credibility at some level is incredibly linked to the mechanics because a child is coming up with the mechanics of this. Right. And it almost does have to be sort of simple and obvious once you get on the other side of it or else it wouldn't be. Like, for example, we dinged Death on the Nile, perhaps a little unfairly, for being so complicated and Rube Goldbergian. That would be even more damning here if it turned out that a 12-year-old child were the architect of that plotting. Right. So I want to hedge all of my comments about the mechanics in the idea that they are intrinsically linked to credibility, a 12-year-old has to have come up with what the plot mechanics are. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I actually, I'm okay with awarding higher marks to credibility than mechanics. That is sort of, I think, a way of expressing through the rankings your point. I agree with you. It's a little hard to know exactly where this falls when we're comparing it to other books because she's doing things so differently. And I mean, I think the answer is that it does have to be a little bit lower than it would be for books that we love as much. I think these are the categories that come out a little bit lower. Two other points, one in favor of plotting and one demerit. (laughs) I've got to give her props for featuring an actress. 
as one of her main characters, and it has nothing to do with anything. That's one of the trope obfuscations that she's doing here, where it's like, well, the actress has to be involved somehow, right? And nope. There's no bad lighting. There's no costuming going on here. There's no wigs except for Gillian Anderson in the movie. Costume hats off to Christy for that. But then also I mentioned Catherine Harkup and A is for Arsenic. And this apparently is a rare case where Christy flubbed a bit how Esserine would work. And I just thought it was this was really interesting. Just, I, I'm going to geek out for a second as I often do with Harkup's book. But apparently it would take somewhere between three and five bottles of Esserine eye drops to kill a 70 kilo, approximately 150 pound man. And even more problematic is the fact that there's only a syringe full being drawn out of that bottle that is then being injected into a diabetic patient in normal circumstances. So it's super unlikely that the dose Brenda gave him would have killed him. And Esserine deaths are extremely rare because there are actually a lot of antidotes for it, a lot of potential antidotes. Like we're not in cyanide territory here whatsoever. This is not a particularly deadly or commonly used poison. That's a little bit of a weak point on plot mechanics. And poisons are something that Christie almost always gets right. I came out on sevens for both mechanics and credibility, but I'm willing per this conversation to go lower on mechanics. How do you feel about a six or is that what you were thinking? Or yeah, I- probably sort of there. A six and a seven. Yeah. Um, all right. So six for plot mechanics, seven for plot credibility. Then we just have one category for characters, obviously, that we're going to count twice since we don't have any series long characters in here. I think that in our last novel that we covered, Taken at the Flood, I, I already mentioned this. It seemed as if a lot of those characters, you know, were in previous Christie's. They were tropes. They were cliches. I think these characters just feel fresher. I mean, We've talked already about Josephine. I think we can kind of skip past her, even though she's the biggest bolster to my argument. We've really never seen anyone like her before. And I think she's fantastically drawn. She's amazing. I think Aristide Leonides, even our first victim, you know, given that he's this kind of crooked Monty, you know, he casts a large shadow over the book, I think much more effectively than Gordon Clode did in Taken at the Flood. He's much more interesting. Magda Leonides, I actually thought, was also interesting because we haven't really seen actors be figures of fun so much in Christie because they do usually figure into the plot in some way. So I think she was well used because you need her. And she's not just comic relief either. I mean, she's kind of a bad mother. You know, the ways in which you see Sophia... Because she's kind of a bad mother? (laughs) Yeah, she's a terrible mother. She's a monster mother. The ways also that you see Sophia interacting with Magda are entertaining, but also really give you an immediate better understanding of Sophia as well. And oh, well, the best the best line is very early on. They say, well, she can't be interviewed by the chief inspector. And Sophia says, oh, no, that's OK. She'll do what the producer says. And in this case, I'm the producer. And she's like moving the picture frame down to further give her to be the, cu- to give the her cues the of like tamp yeah. it down a little bit. You're being a little too much. Yeah. I enjoyed her. I actually thought Roger too, the lovable sort of mess that he was and how different he was from Clemency. I thought they, again, like in the past couple of novels, we've had these odd pairings of people who you might not think have a good relationship, but actually have this really strong underpinning to their relationship. And I think Roger and Clemency are uh, very very fresh take on that couple. You know, it did not feel like a repeat of Alexandra and Stephen as we did get from Taken at the Flood. So, you know, I thought that both of them were were really interesting. Well, I mean, I like the idea that Clemency, despite all appearances, is like a giant sap. Clemency, like, adores her husband. She does. It's very Alexandra Faraday, and it's very Francis Claude. But she feels like her own person. She feels like an original character who appears only in the story. And then even Lawrence Brown, he's characterized as this scared rabbit of a man. Right. I think we get a faint sense of Chrissy's distaste for pacifists in him. You know, he talks about the very idea of killing as a nightmare he, to me. He was a conscientious objector during the war. Right. He was a, he was a conscientious objector. So he did hospital work instead, stoking boilers. But even that he couldn't do because he says terribly heavy work. I couldn't go on with it. So they let me take up educational work. But then in there's this one scene where Charles is listening in. He's essentially He's eavesdropping lessons. He's an excellent teacher. I loved that. Like, I loved that little note of like, oh, he has a gift. I thought that was so interesting. It brought him to life for me. Aristide Lanides is never wrong about people. And Aristide picked him out specifically 
to be the children's tutor. Well, apparently he was wrong about Josephine. Well, there is the, you know what? There is a heavy suggestion by Charles towards the end of the book that perhaps the reason why he insisted on homeschooling was because of not wanting Josephine to be around other children. Right. Protecting the world, not necessarily himself. Yeah. Correct. And he was probably the kind of person who wasn't super cautious about his own life, which Christy would approve of because she doesn't like people who are into safety and aren't courageous. Right. So I think I mentioned this. I think that by far the least interesting character is Charles, but I also think that that is a decision that Christy made and probably a good one. And sort of Sophia too, honestly. She's she's interesting, but... So this is inherently a little bit of a problem. Right. If you have like your two essentially main characters both be pretty milquetoast. But I would argue that that's not the focus of the novel. It's part of the misdirect. We think we're in puzzle mystery land with our two lovers who are going to end up together at the end. And they do. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about a 12 year old psychopath. Well, it's about a family, but yes. Sure, but that is the focus that ends up being the focus of the story. I think at the very least, it's not important that they're the least interesting. And I actually think that she made that decision. I would give her the benefit of the doubt there. And so my argument against this, I'm just playing devil's advocate because I probably ultimately agree with you, but my argument against this would be that in my reread of this, thinking that, oh God, the only thing that I have to focus on here is Josephine, that if Charles had been more compelling as the first person narrator, it would have distracted and that actually would have been beneficial. The ending is so shocking that even her very publisher wanted her to change it, right? And I think what you need to do if you're going to actually pull off a shocking ending is to play as fair as possible with it. And I think she does. If she really was doing that and she was pulling all of the attention away and doing all the usual tricks she does and stuffing the book with well, incident in no, that way, no, 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 it wouldn't no, be no, as good. No, but I'm but I'm not suggesting that we add three red herrings into no, it. I know. I'm just I know asking that Charles be a compelling character. I know what you're saying, but I think the impulse to not beef up a character is the same as not adding in red herrings, etc. You know how I could encapsulate, I think, my counter-argument to what you're saying? It's as if you're arguing that the relationship between Janet Lee and, like, the man she's having an affair with at the beginning of Psycho is not interesting enough. <laughs> Whoa. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, the movie is ending with Norman Bates talking to himself about how he wouldn't hurt a fly. That's the focus. It's all about Josephine. I would give characters a nine. I'm assuming that's too high for you. Yeah, it's too high for me. What would you do? I'm okay with an eight. Okay. I agree with you to a you know huge degree. I just like... I don't think that your two main characters can be that unmemorable. I would take issue with even with calling them the main characters. I think they seem like the main characters, but they're not. Fine, but they do get paid real estate. Sure, but that ends up not being what's important. I can more than live with an eight. I can be very happy with an eight. So eight and eight then for characters. And then setting a tone, I don't think we have to talk that much about because we've really been talking about it throughout the course of this episode. I think this is a superb superlative novel. I don't think that I would give it the 10 that we gave to and then there were none. I already know that you don't want to give it a nine. So I'm not even going to argue for a nine like we gave to Five Little Pigs. And fair enough, too. Like, do I think that it's to the level of and then there were none of five little pigs? No, but almost in terms just in terms of. Oh, you know what? I writing about Yeah, I think it sparkles. You know, I know that I have seemed to be difficult or like I don't like this book. It's that somebody has to act as a counterbalance to Kemper. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't like it as much as you do. But that is not to say that I don't think it's incredibly good and that I didn't hugely enjoy reading it. Certainly an eight. I think I can be really happy with an eight. And like I said earlier in the episode, let's give her her due on setting. We sometimes complain, (laughs) Hercule Poirot's Christmas, that she doesn't (laughs) evoke the house or like the secret of chimneys where she's like, you all know chimneys. It's fine. You don't need to. The house is fantastic. And not even just that initial establishing shot (laughs) that I read out, but also like the way that they're divided 
into thirds with the different families and how oh, they're decorated not, differently. It's not just that. It's there's like lovely stuff. When Josephine comes back from hospital and um, she immediately wants to go see her goldfish, but then they go out to the pond and they're describing various things. And Charles goes with her because he's, you know, supposed to be protective. And then she just starts like getting super angry about the various different kinds of fish and Charles inability to recognize the different ones. Yeah. But it's like all so specific. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, too, we talked about Taken at the Flood being such an excellent post-war novel. She made a, a much bigger hullabaloo about the post-war setting in Taken at the Flood. But you could argue that in some ways, Crooked House evokes that feeling and that setting more powerfully with a tenth of the real estate in the novel. Because um, yeah. it does feel like a world that's gone mad. Yeah, you know, it's not specific, um, at least setting-wise, the scenes at Scotland Yard. But I think tonally, they're unique. The relationship between Charles and his father and the chief inspector, two and a half generations, depending on how old the chief inspector is. Mm -hmm. You know, you have three different levels of people. They're coming at this same issue from these different angles. I think it's really interestingly drawn. Totally agree. We both agree that an eight is appropriate for tone and setting. And then we both agree that we have zero deductions because, you know, this is one of her more modern feeling books, right? I did not feel stuck in 1949 whatsoever. Can I also just say, I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but the book is quite funny. Yeah. I mean, Josephine as a creepster is darkly funny. Oh, it's funny. Yeah. It's it's very witty and there are so many like wry asides and uh, yeah, I know some people listen to this and think that I'm being negative about this book, but I think it's a delightful read. I think it's pretty clear. I think so as well. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think I said before, breezy and creepy. Christy is all about being able to pull off a dichotomy. We talk about that in The Body in the Library, and this might be the best example of that. It's both. It's diverting and disturbing at the same time. How does she do it? I'm not sure. That's what we're trying to figure out in this podcast. Hopefully we're <laughs> elucidating it a little bit. Anyway, we're at the end of our rankings. So here's where we are. For Crooked House, we have a 6 plus 7 plus 8 plus 8 plus 8 minus 0. That gives us a grand total of 37 points. Catherine, putting Crooked House in fourth place. Ooh, wow. One point behind the murder of Roger Ackroyd. And I actually love that because I do see so many parallels in a global way between Crooked House and the murder of Roger Ackroyd. One could argue that they are one trick ponies, <laughs> but boy, is that a great pony and a great trick. And it's why the book is as beloved as it is and as brilliant as it is. And I don't think that either title suffers for the fact that it's a single trick. I think that it shines for that because the trick is just allowed to do everything that it could possibly do. And she just executes it to perfection. So I, I love that those two are right next to each other. I agree with you right now. I will be interested, Kemper, to think about this in a year. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Just warning you, that's where I'm landing right now. Well, we can always put Lord Edward dies above it. That's fine. <laughs> no, my nemesis. <laughs> Jane Wilkinson, no. That is an end to Crooked House. Very spirited and lengthy discussion for this one, but I, I think the title was well worth it. We know a lot yeah, of you are fans. It. Yeah. Join us next time for a special double Halloween episode. Ooh, spooky. Oh, yes. So we are going to be covering two short stories that appear in Christie's collection of spooky and supernatural stories. So very appropriate for Halloween. The Hound of Death. Specifically, we will We'll be discussing The Lamp and The Last Seance. Very excited for those two. And then, of course, our next novel is another fan favorite. We are really just on a roll here. A Murder is Announced. Very excited for that, Kemper. Well, I mean, it's a Marple title, so... I, I mean... <laughs> as much as I don't even know where to go from the 11 that I was at on this episode for Crooked House, well, I, know. I guess I'm going to have, have to, 12. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to sedate you before that episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I, personally, am just looking forward to 
to figuring out how I can apply dark marble. So, Oh, I think it's going to be quite easy to apply the dark marble theory to that book. You can always check out our bonus episodes on our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We'd love to chat with you over there. You can also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is also All About Agatha. And we are on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And we really, really appreciate getting more ratings and reviews because it helps us in our podcast rankings, which helps other people find the podcast and just grows this audience of crazy Christy fans. So please leave a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.